Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So we have today a very exciting founder, you know, a founder that has built a pretty uh, meaningful business uh, from nothing, uh, and the, and also a founder that is that has the global and the international um, perspective and story. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Girish Mathurumbudam. I don't know if I said the last name right, but uh, but hopefully that worked. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Alexandra, and uh, thanks for having me. So you are originally born and raised there in India. So tell us about growing up, being born and raised there. Yeah, so um, I was born in uh, Tamil Nadu in India in a town called Trichy. So I did all my schooling uh, there and went to college uh, in Shastra University in Tanjavur and another small town. Uh, I came to Chennai, which is the capital of Tamil Nadu, for my MBA in 96 and finished my MBA in 98. And then uh, went on to work for a few software companies uh, like HCL Technologies, uh, which was running the Cisco Offshore Development Center. And, and you know, it's interesting there, Girish, because you had the, um, you did the MBA, but then also the, you, you did the electronic engineering degree. But you know, typically what you see is more the engineering folks, more going for the engineering side rather than so much the business side. So why did you decide to combine the two type of degrees? So honestly, uh, uh, like getting a job in 1996 was very, very hard and I didn't get a job out of college. So I was not uh, recruited in campus and uh, I attended this, uh, applied for this MBA program and uh, I, I got admission and, uh, you know, in India, there is a lot of social pressure to get a job once you get out of college. So the MBA in reality was an escape for me uh, from that social pressure. So I thought, okay, it, it wasn't very expensive also. It was like a government funded, uh, very cheap uh, uh, to, uh, like it wasn't uh, expensive. So it was a great escape uh, for me in terms of uh, uh, the social pressure uh, to get a job as soon as you graduate. So that was the uh, frank reason why I went into an MBA. And just out of curiosity, like how, how is that social uh, pressure built? Like what, why is it because it, there's like some type of expectation that you have to follow that path or, or why is that? 
No, I think uh, in general, in families, like uh, uh, you are always compared to relatives and friends. And uh, if, if uh, uh, you you finish your engineering or uh, you finish your graduation, uh, that is like if uh, other peers get a job. So there's always a, a, an expectation in the family. That's a, a, a success culture uh, in uh, India as well. So like, and and today the situation is very different. The job market, like when people graduate, like many people have, are easily getting a job or getting multiple offers. But in 96, things were very different. So uh, I think uh, that was probably, uh, it, it was supposed to be like a, expectation from almost all families that hey if you graduate you you graduate with a job in hand got it got it and obviously after you got your your degrees then you went at it you know more on the engineering side uh you did cisco then you did eforce and then you did soho corporation which is where you spend you know the most amount of time i guess saying what was this experience like for you being at the soho I think uh, it was a phenomenal journey. So before Zoho, I was more of a, a, a Java programmer, Java trainer. And then at eForce, I went into pre-sales and also did training because training is my passion. Uh, I think I'm a teacher by choice. Uh, and uh, so that was my background. And when I joined Zoho, I joined them as a pre-sales engineer uh, in 2001. Uh, when I uh, Left Soho in 2010, I was uh, VP of product management. I think uh, the biggest uh, uh, career change for me happened at Zoho when uh, after like 18 months in, uh, I had the opportunity to uh, discover that I could be a product manager. So that was a big learning and I'm fortunate uh, uh, and grateful for that. So my boss at that time spotted that I could be a product manager and asked me to Consider that as a career and uh, I started Googling uh, what the term product manager meant because till that time I haven't actually, uh, and, and also you have to understand the context is India where we didn't have a lot of product companies. So product management as a, as a career path did not exist. So, so it was all uh, uh, learning by doing and trial and error. And uh, so I think uh, I spent uh, almost uh, 10 years at Zoho and uh, built a very successful um, product line at Zoho, uh, creating a, a massive revenue stream in six years between 2004 and 2010. And, you know, one thing that is very interesting from your background is that you have uh, been doing these transitions quite often. So you went from engineering to product management and then from product management to business operator. So uh, how do you typically tackle those uh, those transitions? So I think uh, there is a, a, a tweet that I came up with recently where, where I said building a company is like building a product where culture is the UX for employees and the customer experience is the UX for customers. So I think I'm a product manager at heart and uh, building a product was uh, a very, very fulfilling experience. It's almost like being a CEO of the product where you are... Uh, um, taking care of all the business aspects uh, in terms of uh, pricing, working with sales, working with reseller. It's a foundation for uh, being a founder, right? So uh, I think uh, the transition to being a CEO uh, was definitely, there was a lot more learning because um, as a product person, you don't run HR, you don't run finance. 
you most often don't run sales uh, so all of this was new but uh, fundamentally i think a company building a company and building a product have a lot of similarity and uh, uh, that's how i think i was able to make the transition uh, and and i also believe uh, strongly in learning by doing and even at freshworks we have a very strong culture of uh, learning by doing we may not know something today but uh, um, we we can become experts in that uh, in the next say couple of years so we uh, have that uh, uh, ability to learn as individuals as teams as company i think i'm really really proud of uh, that culture that we have created so uh, i i can speak about that from my own personal journey as well that's amazing and obviously you have this dogmatic approach and and perhaps all these key lessons that you've been able to to gather so i guess for the people that are listening if there is one trait that you would associate to a rockstar engineer then one trait to a rockstar product manager and one trait to a rockstar business oper- operator what would be those three traits that you would assign to each one of them okay before answering that question i i would actually say and this is something i've told inside the company the, the days of the individual superstar are over today it's all about teams so how do you get teams to work together to deliver great output so uh, like uh, when you're building a company or, or building a product you can't get much done with one rockstar uh, over a long period of time right so but having said that i would say um, for a product manager uh, for a rockstar product manager uh, empathy is a great trait to be able to understand things from the user point of view uh, and uh, for a great designer i think it's craftsmanship uh, like being pixel perfect and and taking care of the details and for a great developer it is uh, probably uh, understanding complexity uh, and simplifying it in architecture like uh, how can they really really uh, uh, break down a very complex problem into uh, working software right like uh, the the breaking down of a complex uh, structure into modular manageable units got it got it and obviously talking about breaking things your tv got broken and that led you to really build into business that you're building now garish so what happened with the tv story <laughs> okay so uh I think uh, uh the, the idea so I'll I'll tell you in 2009 uh, between 2007 and 2009 I was working uh in Austin Texas and uh, in mid 2009 I was going back to Chennai and uh, I was shipping all my stuff back home and you know um when my stuff arrived two and a half months later uh, the, you you remember the fancy Samsung 40 inch LCD TVs Uh, so i had actually shipped that back to chennai and uh, um, i i was waiting for it and when it arrived it arrived broken so i had purchased insurance from the shipping company so i thought it should be fairly straightforward to call them and uh, uh, get my insurance money back um, but long story short five and a half months uh, later multiple phone calls multiple email threads uh, submitting all the documents that they have uh, asked they just uh, simply wouldn't refund the money or or pay my insurance claim so at that point and this is february 2010 and uh, i i just didn't care about the money anymore i guess i wanted revenge or justice whichever way you look at it um, so i went online to a forum called r2i club forum which is return to india forum uh, 
people who are moving back from uh, uh, the states to india use that forum that is where i had originally got the recommendation for the shipping company so i shared my entire story and uh, with pictures of my broken tv and uh, the community started engaging the same day the president of the company came and apologized and the next wow. day money was in my bank and uh, you should understand that these were the days when twitter wasn't big for customer support or facebook didn't have uh, a messenger or business services and uh, and and the back story is i have built four help desks in my career so i understand the concept of a multi channel help desk i know the industry well so what i experienced was a paradigm shift in in the balance of power so power had shifted from the company to the hands of the individual customer when i was able to take on a big company by going online and actually impacting their brand in a place where they uh, source leads so so i think uh, that was a big learning for me where i spotted the opportunity that hey maybe there's an opportunity to build a fresh help desk and that's how the idea for our first product came which is fresh desk we called it fresh desk because of uh, uh, it's being a fresh help desk so the company and the product was called fresh desk in the early days so then obviously the idea comes from a major frustration that comes out of the the broken tv uh and the, and, and and basically then once you have that idea and you decide to execute how did you go about it like how did you go about let's say like really pulling the trigger on hey you know i'm actually going to go at it with this idea and i want to find a solution and this is going to be the team that i'm going to be putting around it to really help me out on this yeah see our challenge was uh, uh, not in the product market fit because as i told you i had built four help desks earlier so i knew exactly what we were going to build saas was new uh, but uh, i assembled my friends uh, uh, from uh, my career at zoho i had made a lot of connections uh, in in those 10 years so getting a rockstar uh, early team uh, with six people was uh, uh, not really hard and i am grateful to my team uh, what was more challenging was again the fact of doing it from chennai we never thought we could be vc fundable right uh, and and at that time when i started i thought who will fund a boring help desk right and uh, but i think uh, uh, i was wrong uh, thankfully so uh, we had uh, like we took almost 9 months to launch the product uh, we launched the uh, product on june 7th 2011 on june 10th we got the first customer from australia it's atwell college they're still our customers so they came online uh, played for uh, two and a half hours with the product and then uh, uh, swiped their credit card and made the first purchase we never spoke to the customer uh, uh, in uh, the first customer and then uh the reason i'm telling you this is uh, when we we were international from day 1 uh, because our playbook we had to build a completely new playbook which uh, uh, is very different from the typical uh, valley saas company so um we when we had six customers they came from four different continents so so we actually uh, till we had we, we got our first 100 customers in 100 days and 200 customers in 200 days all without vc funding and uh, so we were just we realized that uh, we were on a roll and we were able to reach the long tail of the global smb uh, sitting in chennai and uh, building software for the world uh, so we were able to attract the attention of top tier investors like axel partners and tiger global uh, who invested 1 million 5 million in 2011 and 12 and we'll talk about the financing in just a bit but you know what i find amusing i mean it's it's really mind blowing is that here you are you start this company in 2010 and you know obviously people when they think about international presence and all of that stuff 
they think about physical space, meaning physical presence in, in all these different you know, areas or regions or locations. So it's amazing that you guys back then, you know, we're already thinking ahead and, and saying, hey, we don't need the physical presence to actually be global. So, so tell us about this a little bit more. Yeah, I think uh, uh, if, if you Google uh, how to build, uh, sorry, how to incorporate a U.S. company from outside USA, you will land on my blog post. It was, uh, uh, it is still a very most popular blog post in Freshworks. So I think uh, what we decided was, uh, see, today we are living in, in, in a global world and uh, you need a phone number and you need a, uh, if you need a physical address, you have uh, many companies that offer you this virtual office. So we just incorporated a company in the U.S. We actually uh, got a physical office. We uh, got the phone numbers. We set up the systems and we were ready to go global from uh, Chennai in, in 2010. So we, we talked to uh, top banks like Silicon Valley Bank and convinced them that we are a high quality startup and uh, they allowed us to work, open a bank account. We created a merchant account. So there was a lot of work uh, that needed to happen. And we did all of that without actually coming to the U.S. So, so uh, we had today. I think what we have done is a playbook for uh, global companies to uh, to operate from wherever they want. But uh, we really understand digital, and uh, we we I think the fresh work story is how uh, people can learn how you can have a digital presence, uh, which can take you to customers and help closing business without actually having physical location. Having said that, today we have uh, we are operating out of 13 offices. Uh, we have more than 3,000 employees. We have customers in 126 countries. But uh, when we started, we were global from one office in Chennai. That's amazing. That's amazing. And, and then what ended up becoming the business model of the business? Because obviously you guys also went through a rebrand. Yeah. So I think... Uh, so when, when we started with Freshdesk and uh, uh, when we had online acquisition as a strategy, we, we went after uh, the long tail of the global SMB. Like we got a lot of SMB customers. But uh, what happened was uh, by 2013 and 14, we also realized that we had more than a thousand customers who are not necessarily small companies. So I'm talking about companies like Burger King or Schneider Electric or 3M or Pearson. So these were really large companies that were coming and buying our software. And we were closing all this business from Chennai over the phone. And, and we're talking about uh, 300 seat licenses and 200 seat licenses. And, and we realized that uh, while our SMB engine is working great and we're able to close these uh, uh, big deals uh, from Chennai, we also realized uh, we were uh, losing a few deals because we were not able to meet the customer. Like, for example, there was a customer in the UK who wanted us to come and meet them on Tuesday, but we had to tell them, hey, sorry, we don't have a visa. Uh, right? So then so that's when we realized, okay, the SMB engine is great, but if we, but given that the product is working well for larger companies, why don't we go and set up offices uh, uh, globally? And even if they are small uh, offices, like we wanted a commando team and not an army of salespeople, so we, we set up small offices in the U.S., in U.K., uh, and Australia, and Berlin. And uh, we hired a few salespeople uh, who will go and, and uh, outbound and front-end the relationship with the customer while we were initially doing all the heavy lifting from Chennai. So we were able to uh, get a lot more customers who were 
bigger companies because these companies don't come online on Google and and search for software. They are usually used to being sold to, so they expect to meet face to face. So we created that in in 2015. We created the US and the UK office, and then followed it up in 2016 with Berlin and Australia. So we set up these uh, offices and then hired people locally and and built the teams there. So today we have a very successful twin engine model. So the SMB engine is still operating out of India, working globally, and the and the, the mid market engine, as we call it, uh, actually goes after mid market and larger companies like uh, 500 to 5,000 plus employee companies, and we also have large enterprise uh, accounts. So we um, have in region salespeople um, in order to go after that. So I think uh, these are two very different go to market motions, but uh, I think this has been phenomenal learning for us where we built our own playbook. Like uh, we couldn't use uh, like a typical uh, Valley playbook. So we built our own playbook on scaling the business to where we are today. That's amazing. Yeah, because sometimes, you know, the the way the wheel has worked for others, it doesn't mean that it's going to work for you. So um, so very cool. So I guess, uh, Girish, uh, I was alluding to it, you know, and, and we've been discussing it, the rebrand. So obviously you guys, you know, started here in 2010 and then obviously you do the rebrand in 2017. Doing a rebrand is a beast. So what have you learned about doing a rebrand successfully? Yeah, so first let me uh, also tell you why we uh, did the rebrand, right? So uh, our vision was always to be a multi-product company and uh, we went from a fresh desk uh, to fresh service, which is help desk for internal customers. And then Based on our uh, looking at our customer feedback, we saw how uh, how much our own teams were actually uh, missing a good CRM, and uh, what was available uh, was like really we had to integrate five different systems and have an in-house team uh, building and maintaining. So we built Fresh Sales more to solve our own internal uh, CRM needs, but then we have a strong product culture where whatever we build, even internal tools, we build it as a product. And we actually launched it to the market. And uh, like Fresh Sales today is one of our fastest growing products with uh, uh, more than uh, 8,000 customers. So what we realized was this multi-product journey, while it was working great in our online acquisition model, it was also causing some confusion in our customers' mind. And I'll tell you a a famous story. Uh, Once in London, in a trade show, our Fresh Service team was, uh, they had a booth. And uh, they were standing as Fresh Service and there was a customer who came and uh, said, hey, uh, uh, guys, do you compete with Fresh Desk? So the customer did not realize that Fresh Service came from the same company and then the company name was Fresh Desk. So that's when we realized we are not doing justice to the other products by having the same brand. So we decided to rebrand as Freshworks being the company brand and the products being uh, having their own uh, sub brands uh, as Fresh Desk, Fresh Sales, etc. So... um, it's always a hard journey. And in fact, there was a lot of discussion and debate inside the team. And But the one thing was clear is if you're going to do it, doing it sooner is much better than later. So that's why we decided to pull the trigger and actually get it done. And we did it in phases. Like the first phase was more the... And also doing the company brand was easier than changing the product brand because most customers at that point of time knew us as Fresh Desk and and, uh, changing the product name would have meant a lot of engineering changes and disrupting customer brand awareness. So we decided to uh, change the company brand. And uh, 
like uh, much like how alphabet was formed uh, from uh, google so i think uh, it's always easy to create a new uh, company brand than change a dominant existing brand so i think those were some of the learnings uh, and we did it in two or three phases i would say the first phase was all the uh, the administrative website logo and stuff and then uh, aligning people internally to work as one company because in in a multi product company it's, it, we are very entrepreneurial uh, we a lot of times we say we say that we operate as eight products and not as one company so uh, i think getting the internal alignment also uh, like for example when we do an api we used to have a fresh desk api and a fresh service api uh, but now we have a fresh works developer platform right or a marketplace a fresh works marketplace so i think creating that internal alignment was also like really really an important lesson that we learned got it and obviously you guys have raised quite a bit of money how much money have you guys raised today so i think uh, uh, we have raised uh, around 399 million dollars uh, uh, through multiple rounds of financing uh, but we have more than 55% of the money sitting in the bank so uh, from a capital efficiency standpoint uh, the, the primary capital raised is slightly lower than that uh, so so we have uh, a top tier investors like axel partners tiger global google uh, capital g formerly known as google capital uh, sequoia uh, uh, so these are uh, all the tier 1 great investors this is like going to the oscars of uh, investors in the venture world so good stuff so what has been the um, the experience then like what has been the different expectations girish that you have been encountering from round to round from from those investors no i think uh, I, i read online i think it was brad feld uh, or someone who wrote this uh, or maybe uh, fred wilson of union square so when the company is doing good the entrepreneur is in charge and when the company is not doing so well the investor is in charge so i think uh, uh, basically we have been fortunate to have great investors who understood the business and uh, we have also been uh, fortunate to be growing at at a very healthy clip over all these years so i think each investor brings a different value prop uh, to the table uh, like whether it's customer introductions or uh, with hiring local talent or in the case of uh, 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 some uh, like capital g giving us access to uh, google uh, operators or leaders from google so i think each one of our investors brings a, a different set of uh, uh, values that we have tapped into and um, always uh, there has been a, a very healthy uh, growth versus uh, profitability balance in in the way we have approached the business so we wanted sustainable growth and not blind growth uh, so I, i'm i'm also personally super proud that our investors were supportive of all the initiatives that we do at freshworks whether it's the freshworks software academy where we train young uh, uh, high school kids who aren't able to afford college education we teach them software and and uh, uh, try to lift them out of poverty these kids come from low income groups um, so uh, we we do a lot of uh, uh, we freshworks is a great platform that enables us to do a lot of good stuff like that and our investors have been supportive and uh, I, like i think uh, we've had a great uh, journey along with our investors and you were mentioning there girish that uh, you guys have over 50% of the money uh, still in the bank from the money raised so it seems that you guys have been raising quite opportunistic would you say that's accurate 
yes, that is true because I think uh, last year we raised a, a $150 million round, uh, which was the biggest round. And the reason for that is uh, we knew that the, the markets were very good and uh, the valuations were in the public market were good. And uh, so we wanted to uh, capitalize on that. And uh, also uh, the fact that it was predominantly an internal round. Uh, so uh, what happened when, when we were able to uh, present our strategy to the board and they all got excited about uh, the long-term growth potential and they, uh, I was thinking about uh, doing a round to probably bring uh, other investors, but there was so much internal demand and interest uh, that it was a good time and a, and a, a good, uh, it also helps us. Like having a, a reset on the valuation uh, helps us uh, in, in uh, attracting talent and in, in acquisitions and so on. So I think we decided to do the round and, and having uh, internal investors excited is a great positive signal. Absolutely. And obviously on the way to the top, you know, there's always bumps. And I know that you guys had a little story there with ripoff or not. So what happened with a big competitor? So first of all, I would say I'm, I'm really... Uh, happy that we didn't have too many bumps it was almost like a, a smooth takeoff and uh, uh and, and and taxiing and takeoff so uh, i think uh, the ripoff or not story is uh, when it happened in uh, december 2011 and it was uh, we were very very small at that time i think we had probably 200 customers smb customers in total and uh, so we got attacked uh, on uh, uh, twitter by um, one of our competitors as uh, a ripoff, and the reason quoted was uh, "Fresh Desk has desk in the name," right? So, and and I had built four help desk, everything having like like service desk plus and facilities desk and so on. So it is quite common for a CRM to have sales in the name or for a help desk software to have desk in the name. So, but then we realized uh, uh, why this was happening, and and. Uh, so we responded with a website called ripoffornot.org. And I think uh, what the, that moment, I would say, was a, a pivotal uh, PR moment for us as a fledgling startup that was going after uh, big established competitors. So I think uh, uh, it was an internet sensation overnight, like inter uh, entrepreneurs around the world uh, came in support of us, uh, like uh, People, uh, this went uh, uh, viral on Hacker News, on Gawker Media. So I think uh, it's a great story and I would encourage people to uh, go and read ripoffornot.org. And I think uh, it, it just happened. We didn't plan anything. Uh, we were attacked uh, and we came up with a good response uh, by doing the research on why and what was happening. And uh, I think it worked out well. It was a good outcome for us. That's amazing. And now when we're talking about like product, software and all of that good stuff, I've heard you speak about Indian democratic design. What does that mean? So uh, a lot of times I think uh, uh, people don't understand really that software, there are many, uh, there could be an alternate model of designing and building software, right? Because uh, the reason for that is, and there's nothing wrong in having two models. So there is one model of uh, software development, uh, which is focused on building it for the large companies where products are actually built uh, for uh, managers and for uh, uh, vice presidents, but there's not enough focus on the end user. And also they are built for really large enterprise customers, which means the pricing is also like that. 
And uh, so many times uh, developing markets can't afford that product. So we have seen that in enterprise software where the, the software becomes uh, too expensive, bloated and clunky and also takes a lot of time to implement. It may have all the bells and whistles, but to go live uh, with the software, it may take like 12 months to uh, uh, 18 months. So we wanted to show the world that there is an alternative model of product design. So we call it Indian democratic design. And this is based on five principles of uh, simplicity, self-reliance, craftsmanship, scalability and affordability so basically what this means in the uh, there are several products uh, examples that we lay out in in uh, indian democratic design to demonstrate what we mean by each one of this but from a software context simplicity just means anybody coming in uh, should be able to understand the product without requiring the help of, uh, of of an expert to explain to them what it means self-reliance means they should be able to do it themselves without having to rely on uh, heavy-duty professional services. Craftsmanship is basically attention to detail and, and nobody wants to buy a, like a cheap product, right, which is not well-built. So how do you craft a, a great experience in terms of uh, paying attention to detail? And then scalability, we all know that software has to be scalable and if you're running a SaaS company today with millions of users accessing your system, you have to have a, a very secure and scalable uh, uh, product. And the last point is affordability where not every company in the world can spend a million dollars or $2 million per year on software. So there are so many businesses who may be able to spend, even like SMBs who may be able to spend $100 a month. There are companies who want to spend $10,000 a month. There are companies who may be able to spend, say, uh, $30,000, $40,000 per year. So uh, the the spectrum, there's a wide variety of customers and uh, software design can happen uh, where you can actually cater to a broader spectrum of customers. So that is our approach at Freshworks through Indian Democratic Design, where we want to build software that is universally appealing to a broad set of customers. Very cool. Very cool. And one question that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is, I mean, it's it's what, a, what an incredible ride, uh, Girish, that you've had. So I guess uh, now, you know, like if you had that chance to have a chat with your younger self, with that younger Girish that uh, was thinking about maybe starting a business, you know, like while looking at the at the broken TV, you know, uh, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would share with that, with your younger self uh, and why, knowing what you know now before launching a business? <clears throat> so I would probably uh, tell my younger self two or three things. One, because I know a lot of entrepreneurs uh, or a lot of people are afraid to be entrepreneurs, right? Uh, building a business seems so scary it, and it, it is a, a hard journey. But I would tell myself, Girish, go for it. If so many people are doing it successfully, you can do it. But most important thing for it, I will also say, you have to learn how to learn. So a lot of times we always assume learning as education in colleges and schools but a lot of what we learn in school and college does not prepare you for real life. So the most important quality that I've, and, and this is what I'm telling my sons, uh, uh, that just have the curiosity to learn. So if, if they know how to move from a state of I don't know to a state of I know by themselves about any unknown topic, by, by actually uh, going like doing the research and, and going out and finding out, I think that will serve people well. And that's what I would give myself as advice. 
Very nice, very nice. And for the folks that are listening, Girish, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, so you can email me at uh, girish at freshworks.com. Fantastic. And are you on Twitter or LinkedIn or anything like that? Yeah, at, at Twitter, my handle is at mrgirish. Wonderful. Well, Girish, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Uh, thanks for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.